From Brennan to the Boca Chill, from Lamy to La Push, and from the lordly Sawduck to lovely Duckabush, from Samish to Sammamish, Suquamish to Quillacine. The climate is so friendly, it's a land that's evergreen. Hello, and welcome to the History of the Evergreen State podcast. I'm your host, John C., and thank you for joining me today for episode 67, Who Was Gertie and Why Did She Gallop? July 1st of 1940 was one of those clear summer days with endless blue skies and not a cloud in sight, and the temperature was quite comfortable. A crowd of some 10,000 people had gathered for the dedication and opening of the first Tacoma Narrows Bridge. The governor of Washington, Clarence Martin, was one of the many dignitaries that spoke that day, and he extolled the military and economic success that this progress today would bring on. The people of Tacoma had seen this as their long-held dreams finally becoming a reality and would open Tacoma up to many consumers that had to previously rely on Bremerton, and most importantly, would allow access from Pierce County and the cheap housing it had to the employment that would start ramping up as the U.S. inevitably joined World War II. As it turned out, the bridge was designed to be far too slender, but it was strikingly beautiful and was quite the sight for those people who had gathered there that bright July morning. At the time of its opening, the first Tacoma Narrows Bridge was the third largest suspension bridge in the world. In Murray Morgan's South on the Sound, he wrote that everyone marveled at the gossamer grace of a structure so long. As to why the bridge earned the galloping portion of its nickname, that part is easy to figure out and was evident during the construction of the bridge. The bridge was so narrow, flexible, and sensitive to the wind that it really did actually move up and down like a wave and twisted from side to side and all of this was noted during construction long before the first vehicle ever passed over the bridge. The second portion of the nickname, Gertie, is a bit of a mystery as to its exact origins. The name Galloping Gertie was probably dubbed by the construction workers and was actually not the first usage of the name. In the 1930s, a toy mechanical goose was produced that was named Galloping Gertie. An Australian racehorse in the 30s was also named Galloping Gertie, as well as the name of a speedboat that was used in the 1930 Olympia to Seattle 60-mile outboard marathon. People enjoyed watching the moves of Galloping Gertie immensely and would wait until the wind was just right. They would then drive to the bridge and wait in line to take their turn to ride the bridge. Everybody thought it surely must be safe or they wouldn't have built the darn thing. Agreeing with the sentiment, a Tacoma bank erected a billboard on the Tacoma side of the bridge that proclaimed itself as safe as the bridge. In hilarious fashion, the day Galloping Gertie crashed into the Narrows, the bank quickly rushed to take down the now funny billboard. The original design for the Tacoma Narrows Bridge was the handiwork of the leading bridge engineer at the Washington Department of Highways, Clark Eldridge, but this design was ultimately cast aside due to its steep cost. The director of Washington State Highways, Lacey V. Murrow, took the design to the Public Works Administration in Washington, D.C., and they balked at the $11 million price tag that came along with it. The PWA agreed to give the Evergreen State the money only if they went instead with a far cheaper design by Leon Solomon Moisif. Mr. Moisif was renowned for his suspension bridge designs from throughout the 20s and 30s, of which he had a hand in designing virtually every single suspension bridge that was built in the nation at the time. 
Moisif was under the impression that it was very well possible to build suspension bridges that were far lighter than was commonly thought of at the time, and Moisif heavily modified the plans that Clark Eldridge had drawn up, with the main change being the removal of the truss that was intended to strengthen the deck during severe windstorms. Hmm. Galloping Gertie ended up being built without that main supporting truss and was upheld only by 8-foot high steel girders. Yikes. Not surprisingly, omitting this crucial feature saved $4 million from the initial Clark Eldridge design and required far less steel. Clark Eldridge actually remained in construction of the bridge. I wonder how he must have felt working on this project, knowing his design was rejected for a far cheaper and way less safe bridge. But no one really ever thought the bridge would fail as spectacularly as it did, though many worried about its habit of galloping. These wave-like motions moved up and down in the direction of the road span, but it did not move laterally until the day it collapsed. A civil engineering professor at the University of Washington, F. Burt Farquharson, was hired by the Washington Toll Bridge Authority to conduct wind tunnel tests and study the bridge. He had actually started to take measurements and had suggested several design alterations to stop the galloping, but his observations came far too late to actually be of any use. The professor and his students ended up building a 1-200 scale model of the bridge and a 1-20 scale model of the section of deck. The first studies concluded on the 2nd of November 1940, just five days before the bridge collapsed. The professor then proposed two solutions, the first to drill holes in the lateral girders and along the deck so that the airflow could circulate through them which would reduce the lift forces. The second proposed solution suggested giving a more aerodynamic shape to the transverse section of the deck by adding fairings or deflector vanes along the deck, which would be attached to the girder fascia. The first option was not favored due to its irreversible nature. The second option was chosen, but it was not carried out in time because the bridge collapsed just five days after the studies were concluded. Their professor was actually present that day that Gertie collapsed and crashed into the Narrows. He was as dumbfounded as everyone else was that day. The day of the collapse has typically been referred to as the Pearl Harbor of Bridge Engineering in the decades since that November 7, 1940 event. All that morning, Gertie had been galloping fast and hard. Just a couple of minutes before 11 a.m., Leonard Coatsworth and his daughter's dog Tubby had approached the bridge in his vehicle and made their way towards Tacoma. Leonard was an editor with the Tacoma News Tribune and was actually on his way to drop Tubby, a cocker spaniel, off at his daughter's place. He described what he experienced next. Just as I drove past the towers, the bridge began to sway violently from side to side. Before I realized it, the tilt became so violent that I lost control of the car. I jammed on the brakes and got out, only to be thrown under my face against the curb. Around me, I could hear concrete cracking. I started to get my dog Tubby, but was thrown again before I could reach the car. The car itself began to slide from side to side of the roadway. On hands and knees most of the time, I crawled 500 yards or more to the towers. My breath was coming in gasps. My knees were raw and bleeding. My hands bruised and swollen from gripping the concrete curb. Toward the last, I risked rising to my feet and running a few yards at a time. Safely back at the toll plaza, I saw the bridge in its final collapse and saw my car plunge into the narrows. Professor Farquharson ran out to try and save the cocker spaniel, but the dog was terrified and bit him in the process. The professor gave up the trouble and made his way back to safety. Tubby the Cocker Spaniel was the only death during this affair and no humans lost their lives that day. The main cause of this failure was the fact that the girders were solid so that they caught wind like a sail. If these girders would have had perforations like Professor Farquharson suggested five days prior, they would have allowed the wind to go through without causing Gertie to gallop. 
The reduced weight of the bridge was also a huge factor in the failure because the strong winds that are present at the Narrows and, if it would have been of the original design, it probably would have been stiff enough to withstand the heavy winds, but I'm no engineer so I'm not going to pretend I'm one either. There were actually four separate filmings to capture this collapse that everyone has seen by now. Barney Elliott and Harbin Monroe, who actually owned the camera shop in Tacoma, captured Leonard Coatsworth attempting to rescue the dog and his subsequent escape from the bridge. The rights to this film were then sold to Paramount Studios. The film was actually captured on 16mm Kodachrome film, but the studio converted it to black and white and distributed the film clip all over the world. Home distribution rights for the film were licensed by Castle Films and released on 8mm film. The film by Mr. Elliott and Mr. Monroe was selected in 1998 to be preserved by the United States National Film Registry by the Library of Congress. Engineering students around the world are shown this film as a cautionary tale today. Subsequent investigations and testing revealed that the bridge was vulnerable to vibrations generated by wind. When the bridge experienced strong winds from a certain direction, the frequency oscillations built up to such an extent that collapse was inevitable. K. Yusuf Billa and Robert H. Scanlon states that Lee Edson in his biography of Theodore Van Carmen is a source of misinformation. The culprit in the Tacoma disaster was the Carmen Vortex Street. However, the Federal Works Administration report of the investigation, of which Von Karman was a part, concluded that it is very improbable that the resonance with alternating vortices plays an important role in the oscillations of suspension bridges. First, it was found that there is no sharp correlation between wind velocity and oscillation frequency, such as is required in case of resonance with vortices whose frequency depends on the wind velocity. A group of physicists cited wind-driven amplification of the torsional oscillation as distinct from resonance. Subsequent authors have rejected the resonance explanation and their perspective is gradually spreading to the physics community. The User's Guide for the Current American Association of Physics Teachers, AAPT, DVD states the bridge collapse was not a case of resonance. Bernard Feldman likewise concluded in a 2003 article for the physics teacher that for the torsional oscillation mode, there was no resonance behavior in the amplitude as a function of the wind velocity. An important source for both the AAPT user's guide and for Feldman was a 1991 American Journal of Physics article by K. Yusuf Billa and Robert Scanlon. According to the two engineers, the failure of the bridge was related to a wind-driven amplification of the torsional oscillation that, unlike a resonance, increases monotonically with increasing wind speed. The fluid dynamics behind that amplification is complicated, but one key element, as described by the physicists Daniel Green and William Unruh, is the curation of large-scale vortices above and below the roadway, or deck, of the bridge. Nowadays, bridges are constructed to be rigid and to have mechanisms that damp oscillations. Sometimes they include a slot in the middle of the deck to alleviate pressure differences above and below the roadway. The winds that brought down the bridge that day resulted four days later in the Armistice Day storm of 1940. This low-pressure system followed a track across the country and what resulted was one of the greatest storms to strike the Great Lakes region. The Chicago Tribune's front page warned that the winds were the heaviest to smash the city in a century. This storm claimed the lives of 145 people across the Midwest. The collapse of Galloping Gertie also signaled the collapse of Leon Moisef's career, and he passed away just three years later on the 23rd of September 1943 in New Jersey. Taking some of the blame was Clark Eldridge, who later went on to work for a contractor in San Francisco that was currently contracted out by the United States Navy in Guam. When the United States joined the war and Japan invaded Guam, Clark Eldridge was captured and made a prisoner of war for a period of three and a half years. 
Following the surrender of Japan, Mr. Eldridge returned to the Evergreen State and resumed work as a consulting engineer and private contractor. For the rest of his life, Mr. Eldridge considered the collapse of Gallup and Gertie to be a great personal tragedy that he should have been able to prevent. Intense study of the collapse followed for years afterwards, and it became a textbook case almost immediately in the problems to avoid in the construction of suspension bridges. In fact, before the bridge ever collapsed, there was research going on to fix the galloping problem. This event dramatically changed the thinking of engineers across the globe. Before this, not a whole lot of thought was given to how structures would handle high winds, which was evidenced with Gertie. Eventually, wind tunnel testing of bridge designs was a mandatory process, and that can be traced right back to galloping Gertie and that November 7, 1940 morning. Another key consequence of this event was that suspension bridges reverted to a deeper and heavier truss design, including the replacement for Gallup and Gertie, but I'll get to that in a minute. Since the United States was preparing for the inevitable and that it would enter World War II, steel was in high demand and salvage efforts began almost immediately following the collapse. Two separate boards of review determined that the bridge would be impossible to repair and that all the steel that was salvaged would be melted down and used in the war effort. These efforts continued until May of 1943 and actually ended up costing the state money with a net loss of over $350,000, which today is worth about $5.2 million. Following the Second World War, talk ramped up of finally replacing the bridge with a newer and much safer one. My great-grandfather's brother, Edward, actually helped to make the steel that was used in the new bridge. He was a longtime employee of Bethlehem Pacifico Steel, which was responsible for fabricating and erecting the steel truss parts of the bridge. Construction began in April of 1948. The cable that was used was spun by John A. Roebling & Sons, with the final cost of the bridge being $11 million when it was completed in 1950. This new bridge was comically dubbed Sturdy Gertie, but it didn't really stick for obvious reasons. It featured a larger width-to-span roadway proportion which works against any tendency to twist that doomed its predecessor, as well as having perforated girders and open grating on the deck surface that lets the wind pass through and keeps the pressure above and below the deck balanced. Sturdy Gertie is 40 feet longer than its galloping forerunner, coming in at 5,979 feet long, making it the fifth longest suspension bridge in the United States. With a tower-to-tower -tower span of 2,798.6 feet, it comes in as the 59th longest in the world. Dexter R. Smith designed the bridge, while Charles E. Andrew was the principal engineer overseeing the project. Professor Farquharson and his research group at the University of Washington also helped to collaborate on the design. The group at the UW and another led by Theodore von Karman down at the California Institute of Technology did vital testing of models of the bridge and wind tunnels that helped to ensure the safety and stability of the new bridge. The bridge opened to traffic on the 14th of October, 1950, and the first vehicle to cross Sturdy Gertie was a 1923 Lincoln Touring Car that also claimed the title of being the first to cross its predecessor. To pay off the $14 million bond issue that paid for the construction, the Washington Toll Bridge Authority operated the bridge until it was paid off, and, in 1965, the Washington Department of Highways took over ownership. The department has since been renamed WashDOT. To this day, the bridge has passed every single test it has been given and has proven itself worthy of being named Sturdy Gertie for its steady, solid, and dependable structure. The second Tacoma Narrows Bridge was designed to handle 60,000 cars a day, but by early as 1967, daily traffic had surpassed 67,000 vehicles a day. 
By the new millennium, nearly 90,000 vehicles crossed the bridge daily. It was clear that something needed to be done to alleviate the pressure that the bridge was now experiencing. The Washington State Department of Transportation began planning to construct a new span to act as the westbound lanes over the Narrows. Construction began in 2003 to be parallel and just south of the existing Sturdy Gertie. The roadway and underlying truss of suspension bridges is suspended by vertical suspenders or hangers that descend from two massive main cables, one on either side of the deck. These main cables pass over towers through cable saddles and then gracefully descend to the shore where they are then hitched to giant concrete anchors. The load of the cable is passed to the towers at the saddle and the anchors act as a counterweight. The main cables that make up the 3rd Tacoma Narrows Bridge are 20.5 inches wide and are made up of 19 strands, with each of these strands then containing 466 wires. These wires that make up the strands are about as thick as your common number 2 pencil. As a whole, each of the two cables contain a grand total of 8,816 wires, so just imagine for a second 8,816 pencils stacked around each other. It's fascinating. At the anchors, the main cable then splays into individual strands where they are then wrapped around what is called a strand shoe. These shoes connect to strong anchor rods which are cemented in the anchor. The towers of the new bridge were constructed on concrete with reinforced steel, contrasting with the steel towers used in Sturdy Gertie. Each tower is 510 feet tall and contains 8,500 cubic yards of concrete. Together, the two towers for the third bridge contain 2.9 million pounds of reinforcing steel. The caissons, which are the foundations of the towers, weigh 85,000 pounds each and are also constructed of concrete and steel. The overall length of the bridge is 4,500 feet, and the tower-to-tower -tower main span is 2,800 feet long, making it the 60th longest span in the world. This main span is hung from 69 pairs of suspenders per side. The east side of the span from the tower to shore is 1,200 feet long and hangs from 29 pairs of suspenders, whereas the western span is 1,400 feet long and hangs from 34 pairs of suspenders per side. For the deck of the new bridge, WashDOT actually imported a steel truss from South Korea that arrived in 43 different sections and upon its installation was covered in asphalt that we see today. Contracting for this project was a venture by Bechtel and Kewitt known as Tacoma Narrows Constructors with a total cost of construction topping out at $849 million. An interesting note here is that during the construction of Sturdy Gertie, four workers died, but during this massive undertaking 50 years later, there was not a single death and actually very few injuries considering the size and scope of the project. Another interesting but also somewhat frustrating fact about this third bridge is that tolls have been collected since it opened in 2007 and are not expected to be paid off until sometime in the early 2030s. But knowing things around here, that will probably get pushed back. Sturdy Gertie was paid off by 1965, a mere 15 years, but I guess times change and there's always that pesky specter of inflation. The 15th of July 2007 dawned as a beautiful day, sunny but not too hot. That day, the Washington State Department of Transportation had had a packed day planned out to celebrate the opening of the new eastbound span for the Tacoma Narrows and its and expected crowds numbering 40,000. Crowds that day actually numbered over 60,000 people. State officials dubbed it the one and only chance in history to walk or run in the traffic lanes of the new bridge and the day featured a 5K bridge run walk and was held to benefit the neonatal intensive care unit at Tacoma General Hospital. Registration for the event saw 10,000 people sign up, which began promptly at 8 a.m. that morning. 
The bridge was said to tremble slightly under the weight of the gathered crowd of runners and walkers, but I really doubt it, because then that would mean it wasn't very structurally sound. Following the run, there was a ceremonial ribbon-cutting at the new toll booths on the Gig Harbor side of the bridge, which included several short speeches. There to cut the ribbon was State Treasurer Michael Murphy, State Speaker of the House Frank Chop, Chief of the Washington State Patrol John Batiste, and State Representative Pat Lance. Up next in that day's docket of events was the ceremonial first crossing of the new bridge. The 1923 Lincoln Touring Car that first crossed Galloping Gertie and then again was the first to cross Sturdy Gertie once again had the honors of first crossing the third bridge. Passengers in this car included Michael Murphy and Frank Chop, with Mr. Murphy paying the first toll. The second car to cross was actually a 1950 Washington State Patrol cruiser that was used to drive then-Governor Arthur Langley across Sturdy Gertie. Washington State Patrol Chief John Batiste drove passengers Richard D. Ford, who was the State Transportation Commissioner, and retired State Trooper Bob Rupp. Mr. Rupp was the patrolman that drove the governor during the 1950 dedication procession of Sturdy Gertie. The third car was a Lincoln sedan that was followed by a 2007 Prius, showing just how ugly our cars have become over the years. I joke, following behind the Prius was the color guard for Bremerton's Naval Hospital. The bridge opened to pedestrians at 10 o'clock that morning, though thousands had already crossed during the 5K. Thousands more people crossed the bridge back and forth that beautiful summer day, and it immediately became one of the most photographed bridges in the Evergreen State. Also among the ceremonies that day was a remembrance of the people who had passed on who had advocated relentlessly since 1992 to make the new bridge possible. State Representative Ruth Fisher and State Representative Bob Oak were among the people honored that day. Also highlighted was the increased safety that the new bridge would bring since prior to 2007, head-on traffic had to face each other while crossing the bridge. Recognized by State Patrol Chief John Batiste that day was Lynn Torgerson, who was crossing Sturdy Gertie when her Toyota pickup truck was hit head-on and her mother, who was sitting in the passenger seat, died as a result. Chief Batiste also spoke of the other 11,000 collisions that had occurred, which included over 500 injuries and 19 fatalities. Concluding the ceremony was a beautiful rendition of Amazing Grace that was sung by members of the Color and Harmony Trio. The Builder's Ribbon Cutting Ceremony briefly followed, then it was on to the official bridge dedication. Governor Christine Gregwire spoke briefly and another ribbon was also once again cut. Sadly, since 2014, nine people have lost their lives jumping off the Tacoma Narrows Bridge. In 2018, the Gig Harbor and Key Peninsula Suicide Prevention Coalition started a year-long project to put up nearly two dozen signs in an effort to prevent people from taking their own lives. The signs offer a message of hope and provide the number for the suicide prevention hotline. The coordinator of the group lost his son 20 years prior and he says that if the signs make people pause and think, which is the goal, then they have served their purpose. The coalition continues to lobby the state for more funding for netting and other safety measures. Life is worth living, there is help, you are not alone, and as a person that has struggled with depression most of my adult life, if you, a listener, feels this way, reach out to me, I'm here to talk, and I care about you, even if I don't know you. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and can be reached at 800-273-8255. Sources for this episode include... South on the Sound, An Illustrated History of Tacoma and Pierce County by Murray and Rosa Morgan, 
MyNorthwest.com, HistoryLink.org, the Gig Harbor Historical Museum and Society, the University of Washington Libraries, the Museum of History and Industry, the Tacoma News Tribune, the Seattle Times, Spanning Washington, Historic Bridges of the Evergreen State by Craig Holstein and Richard Hobbs, and the Washington State Department of Transportation's website. Thank you for listening to Episode 67, Who Was Gertie and Why Did She Gallop? Episode 68 will be released next week. A special thanks goes out to Al Hirsch for providing the music for the podcast. If you have any questions about the show, please contact historyoftheevergreenstatepod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to another episode of the History of the Evergreen State Podcast. And until next time, I'm your host, John C. Stay safe out there, everyone. There's peace on the Skokomish, on the Queets and on the Hull. There's calm on the Nisqually, born of ageless ice and snow. A land that nature loves so much, she stays the whole year round. I trade a royal palace for a shack on Puget Sound. There's Chimicum and Stillicum, where spouts the gooey duck. The singing still Guamish and the swirling skookum chuck and moclips and copalis where the razor clams abound a little bit of heaven is a shack on Puget Sound a little bit of heaven is a shack on Puget Sound